You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. By God's people, if you're able to remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. As we delight ourselves in rich food this morning, it has been our custom now for some time to, to move through whole chapters, sometimes two chapters. This time, however, we'll only move through the first 24 verses of Genesis 30. And as Alec prayed, it is our ambition this morning to stand under the word of God and not over it, but to stand under it. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that that even I may have children through her. So she gave her her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me. And has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment for my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God, verse 22, remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. 
she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she has called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. And this is God's word to us this morning. Please be seated. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and we come to chapter 30 in this great narrative of scripture, this great history of redemption. Suffering, if you've been alive for any amount of time, you'll know this to be true. Suffering is a human experience that none of us will be able to escape. No matter how hard we try, suffering will find us. We often say at this church that we're either in a season of suffering coming out of a season of suffering or entering into a season of suffering. It is a, it is a human experience to suffer. Suffering can come as a result of, of someone else's sin against us. Sometimes suffering can come as a result of an illness or disability. But sometimes suffering comes to our lives as a result of our own foolish and sinful behavior. Sometimes we can, through sinful and foolish decisions in life, kick up all kinds of dust in life and then have the audacity to complain that we've got dirt in our eyes. Sometimes suffering comes as a result of our own foolish and sinful decisions. Well, Jacob, our latest patriarch, has been kicking up dust since chapter 26 through sinful and foolish decisions. He's swindled his brother's birthright and his brother's blessing. Jacob has, has hedged his bets with God. And of recent, Jacob has married two sisters and has become a polygamist like his brother Esau. So he's kicking up all kinds of dust in his life. Jacob's life hasn't all been bad. It hasn't all been Low, Jacob has shown moments of faith and promising growth. But like many of us, his growth in maturity is a long and bumpy road. And of recent, as I mentioned, Jacob has sown to the winds of polygamy. That is having multiple wives. He's sown to the winds of polygamy and now he's reaping the whirlwind of conflict. Our text this morning describes a bitter rivalry between two sisters, a rivalry that grows into a birth war between both of them, where severe envy and jealousy has taken root in their heart. Chapter 30 really reads like a 90s soap opera script, this love triangle that has just gone terribly wrong. Sometimes suffering comes as a result of our own foolish behavior. Despite the fact that most of us are not engaged in polygamy or particularly tempted towards the first century fruit called the mandrake, despite that this, these cultural disconnects exist for us, the roots of their rebellion, Rachel, and Leah and Jacob, the roots of their rebellion are alive and well in us this morning. Envy, rivalry, 
sinful anger, impatience, superstition, all of these species show up in our hearts today. And the good news is that in the same way these roots of rebellion are the same, the good news is the remedy is the same as well. The remedy is the same. Furthermore, while this chapter does read like a 90s soap opera, there is also another script being written underneath it all. God is at work. In the middle of this chaos, God is moving. God is writing a new script, a new story of redemption. And this morning, God is sketching out for us a fresh picture of his remarkable grace. But before we draw out some of that application for us this morning. I want us to move through the text as is our custom. Like last week, there are three scenes that sort of unfold in sequential order in these first 24 verses, three scenes that unfold and open for us. So the first scene I've just entitled warring sisters, warring sisters. Look at verses one and two again with me. Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. When Rachel saw she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? See, years had gone by. And Rachel had received no children. Only Leah had received the four boys. And although Rachel was blessed with external beauty, she felt altogether empty inside because she was unable to bear children. Bearing children in the ancient East, of course, was the crown achievement for a woman in that culture to add to the clan, to add to the family. And Rachel bearing no children, felt altogether empty. And she envied her sister Leah. Envy is the personal torment. It is a sin that is born in the heart. It is the personal torment one feels as a result of someone else's advantages in life. So you could see somebody else's reputation somebody else's material wealth, somebody else's relationship with their spouse or some other, and you think, I, I should have that. And it's that inner torment and turmoil that comes as a result of seeing somebody else's advancement. And instead of taking her request to the Lord for children who is the author of life, God is the author of life. Instead of Rachel taking her request to the Lord, instead she looks to Jacob and she gives her husband a desperate ultimatum. Give me children or bury me. Give me children or I am despairing of life itself. See, Rachel had attached ultimate worth to what she could produce. Rachel had attached ultimate worth to what she could produce. And when she could not produce, she despaired of life. 
And it's understandable, again, in the ancient East, it was seen as the crowning achievement of life to bear women or to bear children for the family. And so Rachel is asking the question, who am I if I am not a mother? I'm nothing. And Jacob, instead of leading his wife into the presence of God, who is the author of life, instead of leading his wife and cultivating an atmosphere of worship and dependence upon God and his family, Jacob instead lashes back out at Rachel. Am I God? Did I stop this life in your womb? Of course, that's true. He's right to say, I, I'm not the author of life, but he stops there and doesn't lead his wife into prayer, into dependence upon God. Instead, he lashes back out at her. Right in the middle of this marital conflict, both Rachel and Jacob are forgetting the nearness of God. They're forgetting the promises of God. They're forgetting that God has caused their life. And so the conflict escalates. In relational conflict, when it stays horizontal, conflict will always escalate. And don't think if you numb it that it went away. It'll just give birth some other time. Conflict doesn't age well. Rachel demands that Jacob sleep with her servant Bilhah. So now it just spirals out of control. In order to give her a child through surrogacy, Rachel says, here, take my servant. And her plan works twice. Bilhah gives birth to two sons, Dan and Nephtali. And Rachel interprets this as victory over Leah. Look at verse 8. Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings. And Andre, if I can come down just a little bit. Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she sees her scheme, her plan as as successful, as victorious over her sister. And here, right off the bat, here's one point of application for us this morning before we get too far into this. This is a clear example. Listen. This is a clear example on why we should not interpret every blessing or every success in our lives or in the lives of others as necessarily God's favor. We do this a lot in the West. When we see somebody gaining material wealth or gaining family, we just assume because there's so much prosperity gospel in us, we just assume that God is blessing them. Don't assume that. Don't assume that. It is not a sign of God's smile upon that person necessarily. God is not smiling upon Rachel's birth war against Leah. These boys are a blessing from the Lord and will be a blessing for sure. But God is not smiling upon Rachel's birth war, nor is he pleased with Rachel using her servant in this way. God never condones sinful means simply because there was a positive outcome. And the situation continues to spiral out of control. Leah, Leah, who after her fourth son, remember last week, her fourth son, Judah, was born. She decided to praise the Lord. This same Leah is now provoked to anger herself. 
And instead of taking her anger to the Lord and allowing the Lord to diffuse that anger in her heart, she retaliates. This is another teachable moment for us. Just last chapter, we, we, we were looking at Leah as a good example of what we ought to do when God provides. We turn our praise to the Lord. And yet, like us, Leah has a leak somewhere. She's forgotten the nearness of God, the covenant-keeping promises of God, and now she doesn't take her anger to the Lord. She, intend, she instead retaliates against Rachel. Look at verse 9. When Rachel saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And as a result, Leah ends up having two more sons through her servant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. So this is a war. This is a birth war between two sisters. This is a very troubling scene. Calvin writes, for our own instruction, he says, Moses, by exhibiting Rachel's evil and Leah's retaliation, Moses teaches us that we are all like this. And he teaches us that we're all like this so that each of us may tear up the sin of envy by its roots, end quote. Okay, maybe you're not engaged in a birth war in some remarkable love triangle in your life. But that sin of envy is alive and well. And Calvin says, and I think he's right, we are now faced with this before us so that we might take that sin of envy and tear it up at its roots. But that's scene one. We have warring sisters. And it doesn't get any prettier from there. Scene two, I've entitled Magical Mandrakes. (laughs) It gets a little bizarre. Here we go. Verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, that is Leah's firstborn son, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, this is Leah responding to Rachel, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? So as I've thought about this, this is actually a sort of classic relational conflict. The conflict begins with something significant, but pretty soon you're arguing about something really insignificant like spaghetti or some sort of food or who left the the milk in the refrigerator or finished the milk and didn't throw away the carton. Have you ever noticed this in your marriage? Maybe it's just in ours. It's the, the conversation, the conflict is something significant and then it starts to deteriorate and we're arguing about insignificant things and start saying, you all, you never... You never loved me. You know how I know? Look in the fridge. There's the, there's the milk carton in there. You haven't thrown it away. Always. You always do. It always ends up being something stupid. And then we laugh about it, right? We'll notice this probably most likely this Thanksgiving week. <laughs> Everybody taking out their passive aggression on the dry turkey, right? It's not about the turkey. There's more going on. 
or taking out their aggression on Aunt Millie who chose to, to bake a pecan pie instead of pumpkin when everybody knows she's a better pumpkin pie maker, not pecan. Why would she do that? That's not her lane. Get out of your, get in your own lane, Aunt Millie. All of this aggression gets taken out on this really bizarre sort of occasions. There's always more going on under the surface. There's always a presenting symptom and wise people don't attack the presenting symptom. Wise people, people that are stooped in God's word and are near to God and God is near to them, understand that it's never about the mandrakes. It's never about the dry turkey. It's not about the milk. It's not about the presenting symptom. There's something going on underneath. And the same is true in this scene about mandrakes. There's something going on beneath the surface. It's interesting. The mandrake plant still grows wild in the Middle East today. And it puts out a plum-sized fruit. The mandrake does, and it's really sweet in its smell and in its taste. But also, something interesting about the mandrake, the roots of the mandrake plant look like the lower half of a human body. So maybe don't Google image this, but if you don't believe me, you can maybe Wikipedia it or or Google it, but it's true. If you pull a mandrake plant out, the, the root system looks like a human body, right? So combined with the sweet smell and the sweet taste, along with its human-like attributes, mandrakes were used as an aphrodisiac. And were said to, as an old wives' tale, as a bit of a superstition, they were said to uh, enhance a woman's fertility. According to one historian, Arabs, and this is no joke, Arabs called mandrakes, the fruit of the mandrake, devil's apples. And the Greeks nicknamed the fruit love apples. And so, so there's more going on. It's not just about the mandrakes. When Reuben finds the mandrakes in the field, he took them to his mom, Leah, because Leah had ceased bearing children. And apparently Leah welcomed this discovery because she was going to use this superstitious fruit as a way to start bearing children again. So there is a distrust of the Lord at the root of her looking to these mandrakes and finding value in these fruits. She's attaching her hope to a superstition. But when Rachel, who is still barren, Rachel sees the mandrakes, she feels like she's got a right to these. And her desire to conceive by way of the mandrakes compels her into this horrible and awful deal with Leah. Look at verse 15. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And here's Rachel's deal. Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So for Apparently, Rachel has sort of been able to guard the marriage bed from Leah. We know from previous texts that Rachel is preferred among the two sisters. And so Rachel has sort of guarded the marriage bed from Leah and now sees an opportunity 
an opportunity to have this superstitious fruit that supposedly causes fertility for herself. And she makes a deal with Leah that you can have Jacob for a night if I can have the mandrakes. And Leah takes the deal. In verse 16, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. She doesn't even hide it. She, she just says, I, I bought this. You, you owe me this. These were, this was expensive. I hired you with my son's mandrakes. This is a callback to Laban, her dad, who hired Jacob, right? For these 14 years for the two daughters. And now the apple doesn't fall, fall far from the tree, pardon the pun. And now we have, we have Rachel hiring Jacob in order to have marital intimacy with him. So Jacob doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't call a family meeting. He doesn't say time out, time out. It's, it's time to call a family meeting. This is spun out of control. The end of verse 16, it says, so he lay with her that night. You know, your relationship has hit a snag when your spouse hires you with superstitious love apples. You know you've hit a rough, a rough patch in your relationship. For the purpose of marital intimacy, you've been hired. At some point, again, you would expect Jacob to say, time out, this is enough. Enough is enough. I, I brought this upon my family. I have not led this well. And now we've gone out of control but he doesn't. Instead, he just continues to go along with everything. The conflict continues to fester. Now, are there anything, is there anything to the mandrakes? Of course not. It's a superstition. It's an old wives' tale. Notice with me who gets the final word in this scene. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah gets pregnant, not Rachel. Rachel was the one with the magical mandrakes, not Leah. Leah had no mandrakes, and yet it is Leah who gets pregnant and not Rachel. And so God is saying to these sisters and to us, don't look to the things that are seen Don't look to the right and to the left. Death by comparison is an epidemic. You don't need superstitions or life hacks to find fulfillment in life. Instead, look to me. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. God is saying, look to me, look to me. And so he allows Leah to get pregnant, absent the mandrakes, instead of Rachel. So from warring sisters to magical mandrakes, we now enter the final scene of our text this morning. And our, this final scene is yet another precious reminder of God's kind nearness and remarkable patience with his people. Look at verse 22. We know this real quick before you look at verse 22. Three years have gone by. We know this by the age of the sons. So three years pass between verse 21 and verse 22. Three years go by. 
Then, verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her, which means she finally prayed. She finally went to the Lord, the author of life. God remembered Rachel and he listened to her and he opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. The word reproach means shame. God has taken away my shame. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. And the Lord does. We'll read in, in, in a few chapters. The Lord adds to her another son, Benjamin, which would be the 12th and final son. Another writes, listen, quote, Rachel had come to the end of herself. The beautiful, favored wife had given up on her devices. There were no surrogates and no mandrakes. Everything was of God, pure and simple. It's been said that God's office, God sets up his office at the end of our rope. When we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our devices, the end of human wisdom, that's where God resides. And three years after the birth war, Rachel comes to the end of herself. She stops looking to superstition. She stops looking at her sister Leah and she goes to the Lord, the author of life, and says, oh God, help me. And God listens to Rachel. Rachel stopped looking at her sister Stop looking for a shortcut. She looked to her heavenly father. Now I said earlier that despite these cultural disconnects, the roots of the rebellion are exactly the same as ours. Jealousy, rivalry, envy, impatience, even superstitions. All of these species of sin show up in our hearts today. So the first point of application as we move through this remarkable text, the first point of application is to recognize once and for all where these sins and all sin comes from. And James tells us that this sin and all sin is born in the human heart. Let me read this text to you. This is James 1 verses 14 and 15. James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So envy or jealousy, or sinful anger, or any sin does not come from the outside of us and work itself to the inside of us. Instead, sin is born in the inside and then works its way to the outside. This is a distinctly Christian worldview. That is to say, our biggest problem is not out there. Our biggest problem is in here. 
Sin does not begin on the outside and work its way in. It begins on the inside and work its way out. Therefore, external morality or right behavior is not enough to neutralize sinful desires. External morality, as important as that is, right behavior, as esteemed as that is, is not enough to neutralize sinful desires. Timothy Lane, the author of How People Change, writes this. You don't behave your way into sin. You worship your way into sin. Therefore, you cannot behave your way out of sin. You have to worship your way out of sin. Certainly, behavior plays a role in sin and repentance. That's not what Lane is saying. Behavior does play a role in sin and repentance, but Lane's point is that behaviors always follow desire. What we value most, what we worship becomes the drivers to the choices we make. You always do what you want to do. Your decision to sit in the chair that you sat in this morning was a decision not on basic logistics or rational thought. You wanted to sit where you're sitting. Every decision we make is an impulse that comes from desire. Behavior follows desire. Therefore, beloved, we will not find victory over any sin, particularly envy or jealousy as it shows up in our text. If we simply deny ourselves the pleasure of possession if we try to just remove ourselves from culture and the world and we sort of start this new monastic movement, when we go to a, a hill country and we just sort of you know, chant to ourselves alone and, and sort of find that as a way of escape, we will not find victory over sin by simply denying ourselves the pleasure of possession. Instead, we will find victory over sin when our pleasures are already preoccupied by our most prized possession, namely God himself. Brothers, if you are trying, if you're, if you're trying to get off of looking at sinful things on the internet, brothers and sisters, you are not going to have success if you just try to deny yourself that possession and just try to push down that lust. No, this is bad and wrong. I shouldn't do it. If that's all you do, that's not enough. It's not enough. The way forward, the way out of that bondage is to find a greater pleasure than that bondage. It's to take your chin and look to a new horizon of affection. And this goes for any sin. 
You'll find yourself on the cul-de-sac of repeating these besetting sins. If you just say, it's all about my behavior. If I just try harder, that is not a Christian message. The Christian message is not do more, try harder. The Christian message is delight in something better. And this is why, as we close, this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ must be at the center of our fight against any sin. Because the gospel, listen, not only is the pronouncement of sins forgiven in Christ, in all God's people said, amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just the pronouncement of sins forgiven in Christ, but the gospel is also the glorious announcement of fellowship with God himself. See, We are forgiven of our sins in order that we might have fellowship with God. God doesn't just wipe away our sins and say, that's it. That's the end of the good news. He wipes away our sins so that we could be in the presence of God and delight ourselves in his presence. We don't stop sinning. This has been said, not from me, but somebody else. We don't stop sinning because sin isn't fun anymore. We stop sinning because we found something better. And we keep showing up. That's why church and daily rhythms, opening the Bible, praying, we keep showing up to remind ourselves of greater pleasure in God. Greater pleasure in God. I don't need to covet somebody else's stuff. I've got God. What more do I need? And like Leah, we have a leak, right? Which is why God says, don't forsake the assembly together. Keep coming to church. Keep opening up your Bible. Keep praying because we got a leak somewhere and we need to be reminded that we actually right now as Christians possess the greatest treasure on the planet. Jesus gives gives that famous parable in in Matthew 13. There's a man who's walking in a field and he trips on a on a chest, a treasure chest, and he opens it up and his face is lit up by the, the glories in the treasure chest. And then it says, in his, what? Joy. He goes and sells, what? All that he has in order to buy that field. And, and the parable is that, that God himself is the treasure. He's the most glorious treasure. He's worth abandoning all other things In his joy, he went and sold all that he had in order to buy that field because he knew the treasure was there. So when we walk away and we starve sin out, envy, jealousy, rivalry, lust, all of it, it's because we're finding something better and opening up that treasure chest, opening it up over and over again. Oh, that's right. That's right. I don't don't need anything else. So through the finished work of Jesus Christ, redeemed human beings can now revel in the absolute splendor and majesty of God, which is what heaven is. Heaven is reveling in the absolute splendor and majesty of God forever. And this worship of God is what pries our fingers from lesser pleasures. And this is how we tear up the roots of envy and jealousy. 
So again, beloved, if you're new here, if you're, if you're new to Christianity and you're just, you're sort of peering in to know what is the essence, the essence of Christianity, it is not do more, try harder. Is there effort involved in Christian life? You better believe it, but that's not the essence of our message. As Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. We're not earning anything anymore. We've been given divine fellowship with God. The Christian message is not do more, try harder. The Christian message is sins forgiven and fellowship with God. Finally, if this is true, and I really believe it is, if our sins are forgiven finally and fully in Christ and we've been given access to delight in God and our fingers are now pried from lesser pleasures because they're now embracing a greater pleasure, God himself. The New Testament in particular, Paul the Apostle says that you are now free. You are now a free person. You no longer need to steal or take from anyone else. Envy, you don't need to be envious or bitter at somebody else's advancement. How much more advanced can you be than fellowship with God? That's, that's as high as it gets. That's as good as it gets. And so the New Testament, Paul seems to think that now we are free to serve other people. Now we don't need to take from them. We don't need to compare our lives with them. Now we're free to serve them. So let's turn finally, as we close, I know I've said that four times, but as we for real close, Philippians chapter two, famous text. And if you, if you, if you don't know how to get there, the, the text will be on the screen. Starting verse, verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, that sounds like a lot of do more, try harder, Paul. That sounds like a lot of, like, I thought this, I thought this, how do we do that? How do, I, how do I grasp that vision in my own life? Wow, what's the center of how that's possible? Look at verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You already possess it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, that is Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who was entitled to everything laid aside his entitlements in order to serve those who felt entitled. And he lays aside this. He didn't find it a thing to be grasped, but he laid it aside. He emptied himself and he comes to us. And Paul is saying, have that mind in you. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not only are our sins forgiven in Christ because he emptied himself. Not only do we now have pure delight in God, which pries our fingers from lesser pleasures of lust and sin in this life, but we are now able to serve. We are now able, we have the power now to lay aside earthly pleasure, earthly besetments, and now serve others with the mind of Christ. And the vision couldn't be more clear. In the end, Paul says, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we bend the knee now. May we find joy before his presence now in lifting up the name of Christ.